I'd like to wish everyone a good evening and ask that we open with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we ask that you will bless Dr. Hammond and bless Frontline Fellowship. Bless all those who have come together for this conference. Lord, help us to understand the supremacy of your word and your law as the ultimate guide and rule for the way of salvation, for the conviction of sin, and for pointing us in the direction of righteousness. May this word go throughout the world and reach many willing hearts and convert many and strengthen the faith of many. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to thank Dr. Hammond and everybody at Frontline Fellowship for the privilege of being with you tonight. I've been asked to speak on the subject, Freedom at Risk, God's Law is the Foundation of All Law. Possibly in all history, there are few people who recognize that more strongly than did Sir William Blackstone of England. Blackstone, a lawyer and jurist in the 1700s, wrote the famous commentaries on the laws of England that were probably more influential in America and maybe some of the other British colonies than they were in Britain itself. Britain had a common law tradition, but out in the wilderness here in America, we needed to reduce to writing so that we'd know what it was all about. It's been said that many an argument in an American court was settled by a quotation from Blackstone, and also that Blackstone's commentaries may have sold more copies in America than they did in England. But Blackstone recognizes the supremacy of God's law. He says concerning God's law that God has at sundry times and in diverse manners to discover and enforce its laws by an immediate and direct revelation, the doctrines thus delivered we call the revealed or divine law, and they are to be found only in the Holy Scriptures. But then he says, besides this revealed law, there is also the law of nature, which he says is coeval with mankind and dictated by God himself and superior in obligation to any other, that is, to any human law, and that this is understandable by the God-given faculty of human reason and by looking at nature itself. And we see that scripture itself points us to nature many times and talks about a conscience-bearing witness, talks about the heavens declare the glory of God, go to the ant thou sluggard, consider the lilies of the field, and many principles about God we find are in nature itself. But then in addition to that, Blackstone says we have human law, that is, the laws that are enacted by kings and by parliaments and legislatures, town councils and the like, trying to take these divine principles and apply them to concrete situations. But he says that they are inferior to the revealed law and the law of nature. He says, upon these two foundations, the law of nature and the law of revelation, depend all human laws. That is to say, no human laws should be suffered to contradict these. And he says that both the law of nature and the revealed law are part of the higher law of God. But the problem is, he says, the revealed law 
is what we know to be the word of God because he's reduced it to writing. But he says the law of nature is only what, by the assistance of human reason, we imagine to be that law. If we could be as certain of the latter as we are of the former, both would have an equal authority, but till then, they can never be put in competition together. In other words, because we can be sure the revealed law and only speculate about the law of nature, if there appears to be any conflict between them, we go with the revealed law. Now, it's interesting that in other parts of the world, cultures of all different kinds have recognized this higher law of God and the laws of almost every society have recognized that their laws come from a higher source. In a series that I've done, the historical and theological foundations of law in volume one, I talk about laws in ancient societies, pointing out, for example, that in ancient Egypt, they believe law was the work of a goddess by the name of Ma'at, and that all human legal systems were to be permeated with the spirit of Ma'at. In Babylon, where we see Hammurabi, for example, giving the code of Hammurabi, as we're told, we think, well, there's an example of a human law, but Hammurabi himself didn't think so. In fact, Hammurabi began the code of Hammurabi, and this is somewhere, some will say, maybe a little before 2000 BC, others would say maybe around 1800 BC. But he begins it by saying, when the lofty Anu, king of the Anakani, and Bel, lord of heaven and earth, he who determines the destiny of the land, committed the rule of all mankind to Marduk, when they pronounced the lofty name of Babylon, when they made it famous among the quarters of the world, and in its midst established an everlasting kingdom, whose foundations were firm as heaven and earth, at that time Anu and Bel, or Baal, called me Hammurabi, the exalted prince and worshiper of the gods, to cause justice to prevail in the land. In other words, Hammurabi is saying that he derived his legal code from Marduk, who in turn derived it from higher authorities than he. Likewise, the Persians, as we looked at their system of law, based upon Ahura Mazda, a god that gave laws to man, and they believed that their rulers were appointed by a god, but that they were not god themselves, and that being the case, they had only human authority and not divine authority. But we can go on, we can look to, on the Western Hemisphere, the laws of the Incas that they believe came to them from the Inca himself, and the Inca, the emperor, was considered to be the sun god, similar thinking in the Maya and the Aztecs, less of a lofty view of these things when you get to the North American Indian tribes like the Iroquois Confederacy and the Cheyenne Confederacy and so on. But even there, a strong recognition in their law that the ultimate source of this law was a higher being than man. Point of the matter is in all of these systems, pagan systems, but in all of them, we find a couple of constants. One is that law begins in a very sophisticated and enlightened way and degenerates as time goes on, degenerates into tyranny and the like. And secondly, that all of them believe that their laws come from God or the gods or the Tao or whatever they want to call it, 
but some higher authority than man. And the idea we have today that law is simply the will of man and is man-made is a modern aberration. Now, when we look to monotheism, ethical monotheism, we see this as being the foundation of law. When I say ethical monotheism, we need to remember that man was created monotheistic. Man was originally a worshiper of the true God. In fact, if you read through the great historians at Oxford and Cambridge and other institutions, up until about the middle of the 1800s, they would say that societies like Egypt and other ancient societies began monotheistic and degenerated into polytheism. And the idea that we started polytheistic and evolved into monotheism, that doesn't begin until the later 1800s. And it comes not from evidence, but it comes rather from a Darwinian worldview. In other words, interpreting everything based on evolution. But monotheism is essential to understand the supremacy of law. Because if there is one God, then there is one truth and one law system. If there are many gods, well, then Marduk may have authored one legal system, and Ahura Mazda may have given another, and Ma'ad of the Egyptians another, and Zeus of the Greeks still another, and Odin of the Norse another yet. And so we have conflicting systems. But if there is one God, there is one truth, and there is one law. Furthermore, we talk about our system as being not just monotheism, but ethical monotheism. The principles that we see in law are not just principles that God or a God or the gods put together as celestial hoops for man to jump through to please the gods. Rather, they have an ethical dimension to them. I would ask this question. Did God ordain law because it is right? Or are our laws right because God ordained them? The answer to that question is yes. In other words, you can't separate God's law from his character. And yes, they are right because he gives them. He gives them because they are right. Both are true. And that brings to another principle, sacrifice. In just about every pagan tradition that I've ever seen, sacrifice is for the purpose of appeasing the gods, averting their anger, or gaining their favor. But in Judaism and Christianity, sacrifice has another purpose, and that is to sacrifice God's justice. That would not be true if there were not an ethical and just nature of God. Well, why is freedom at risk if we don't recognize that God's law is the foundation of all law? First of all, freedom is essentially a spiritual need. Whitaker Chambers, in his book, Witness, and for anyone who wants to understand communism and the threat that it poses to the free world better, I would certainly recommend this is one of the most basic works you should read, especially his preface in the form of a letter to his children, but he makes the statement, freedom is a need of the soul. 
and nothing else. It is in striving toward God that the soul strives continually after a condition of freedom. God alone is the incitor and guarantor of freedom. He is the only guarantor. External freedom is only an aspect of interior freedom. Political freedom, as the Western world has known it, is only a political reading of the Bible. Religion and freedom are indivisible. Without freedom, the soul dies. Without the soul, there is no justification for freedom. But let's consider this from another standpoint, and that is, what limits would there be on governmental authority other than those limits that God himself appoints? You might say, well, there are limits in law, but man makes the law and man can change the law. But let's appeal to something higher than just law. Let's appeal to the Constitution. Once again, the Constitution, and that's not just the American Constitution, but the Constitution of any society, is a man-made document, and men can change it. So the Constitution itself, even, is no firm guarantee. And the reason we hold the Constitution of the United States in such high esteem is that we recognize that it is based on higher principles, as are found in the Declaration of Independence, that phrase, the laws of nature and of nature's God. As Dostoevsky put it, if there is no God, everything is permissible. There are no limits, there are no morals, but also, if there is no God, there is no limit on government power. If there is no God, what limits what government can do? If there is no God, what basis do we have for saying that a law is unjust? If the highest human authority, the state, has said it is just, what basis does anybody have for second-guessing that highest human authority, the state? Not only that, but if there's no basis for saying that a law is unjust, then what basis can there be for civil disobedience? What basis can there be for saying that I have a right to disobey that law unless it's a recognition that that law is in violation of a higher law? There are some like Henry David Thoreau here in America who said that it, a law can be disobeyed if it violates my conscience, but that just means personal autonomy that doesn't mean a recognition that there is truly something higher, except that as a transcendentalist and one who learned a great deal from Ralph Waldo Emerson, who in turn got a lot of his ideas out of the East and out of particularly the Bhagavad Gita, that we have the divine spark within us. And therefore, my conscience in Thoreau's view is in the mind of God. But without that, we have no firm basis for saying that we have a right to disobey government. Only if government is going contrary to the higher law of God do we have any authority to disobey. Now, I understand that Matt Truhella is going to talk more about the doctrine of interposition, but interposition means something more. Interposition means not just the individual's right to disobey, but the duty of the lesser magistrate to refuse to follow the higher magistrate, and the higher magistrate has become a tyrant. We have the question sometimes, 
is it really right to say all power to the people? Democracy, the people rule, is that really the way it is supposed to be? Well, the question is, all authority comes from God, but how does God give governmental authority? Well, in the statist view, that is the view of the, the Stuart kings in England in the 1600s, the divine right of kings, God is the source of governmental authority. He delegates that authority to the king, who delegates that authority to the lesser magistrates, parliament and the nobles and so on, who in turn rule over the people. In the Puritan view, God is the source of all authority, but he delegates that authority to the people. And the people delegate that authority to their lesser rulers. They delegate that authority to the king, the higher magistrate, which means that even though we call him the higher magistrate, he is actually subject to the lesser magistrates who are subject to the people who are subject to God. The state of South Dakota, which is my native state, in its state motto, I think puts it very well. And the motto there was drafted by a pastor in South Dakota. Under God, the people rule. And I think that puts it together very well. But what about the right of conscience? Can we disobey government based on conscience? Well, I bring you back to Martin Luther, whose basic premise, sola scriptura, that scripture alone is the ultimate authority, and who, despite what some say, believed in the entire word of God as the inspired and inerrant word. Some will try to tell you that he rejected the book of James, but in fact, he quoted regularly from the book of James, he preached from it, and the statement that it is a straw epistle appears only in the first edition of his introduction to the New Testament, and then appears in no subsequent editions. And when he said that, he was misunderstood. What he meant by that is that compared to some of the Pauline epistles, it is no less inspired, no less authoritative, no less canonical, but it is less edifying. And even that view, Luther changed with time. Luther's basic ministry began and was made possible by an act of interposition. You recall that as he stood before the Diet of Worms, and as he declared before the Diet of Worms that my conscience is bound to the word of God, it is neither good nor right to go against conscience, safe nor right to go against conscience. And then he was declared an outlaw, and the Holy Roman Emperor's decree said that anyone who found Luther could slay him or capture him. And in an act of interposition, his firm supporter, the Saxon prince, the Elector Frederick, staged a kidnapping of Luther, which was all faked, and took him to a castle where he was kept in hiding for a year to keep him safe from the Holy Roman Emperor. Frederick practiced interposition. And that's one of the things that made Luther's ministry possible. But consider Luther's statement there at the Diet of Worms when he says, it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Would we agree with that? Always let your conscience be your guide? Not entirely, unless we take the whole context of what Luther said. He began that portion of what he said by saying, my conscience is bound to the word of God. Conscience is a reliable indicator. Only 
when it is based upon the word of God, the foundation of all law. I thank you for the privilege of being with you. My hope is that in the very near future, I'll be able to be with you in South Africa in person, but I guess this will have to be for now. So God bless you all, and may this conference continue.